You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In some respects, Hubbard discovered himself on that unlucky voyage, which he termed a glorious adventure. His infatuation with motion pictures first became evident on this trip, although no movies were actually made. Despite the defections, Hubbard demonstrated an impressive capacity to summon others to join him on what was clearly a shaky enterprise. Throughout his life, he could enlist people, especially young people, in romantic, ill-conceived projects, often at sea, where he was out of reach of process servers. He was beginning to invent himself as a charismatic leader. The grandeur of his project was not yet evident even to him, but in the Caribbean motion picture expedition, he clearly defined himself as an explorer, sailor, filmmaker, and leader of men, even though he failed spectacularly in each of those categories. He had an incorrigible ability to float above the evidence and to extract from his experiences lessons that others would say were irrational or even bizarre. Habitually and perhaps unconsciously, Hubbard would fill this gap between reality and his interpretation of it with mythology. This was a source of what some call his genius and others call his insanity. Scientology was in its formative stage, still unfurling from Hubbard's imaginative mind. This was a volatile moment in Hubbard's life and the development of his movement. The fervent response of so many to his revelations must have added reality and substance to what otherwise might have seemed mere fantasies. Not only was he inventing a new religion, he was also reinventing himself as a religious leader. He was creating the legend of who he was in the minds of those who believed in him, and inevitably he became imprisoned by their expectations. His followers lived in a state of constant anticipation, trading legends among themselves about the marvels they had experienced or heard about, and speculating upon what was to come. Moments of magic and transcendence kept reason at bay. Ken Urquhart, who served as Hubbard's butler and later as his secretary, or communicator, recalls coaching a little old English lady on a Scientology training exercise. As he observed her, I noticed her nice skin, her eyes, eyebrows. I noted that behind the skin on her forehead was a bone of her forehead, and I knew that behind that lay her brain. As I thought about that thought, her forehead absolutely disappeared. I was looking directly at her brain. I was first astounded and then quickly horrified. Here I was exposing her brain to germs and the cold. At once her forehead was back in place. If Scientology really did bestow enhanced powers upon its adherents, Hubbard himself of all people should be able to exercise them. Hubbard's frailties were obvious to everyone, among other things, his hands shook from palsy and he was hard of hearing, constantly exclaiming, What? What? He sensed the presumptions that surrounded him. Your friends, he said one day to Urquhart, as his bath was being prepared, 
might be curious as to why I employ somebody to open the shutters in my room when I can do it myself. He meant that he should be able, by sheer mental power, to project his intention, and the shutters would open themselves. Well, a lot of people would like me to appear in the sky over New York so as to impress the world. But if I were to do that, I'd overwhelm a lot of people. I'm not here to overwhelm. Urquhart thought of saying that he was perfectly willing to be overwhelmed in order to see such a demonstration, but he wasn't altogether sure that Hubbard could actually do it. The failure of Hubbard's followers to challenge him made them complicit in the creation of the mythical figure that he became. They conspired to protect the image of L. Ron Hubbard, the prophet, the revelator, and the friend of mankind. On the other hand, there were moments when Hubbard seemed to be toying with the limits of possibility. It was rumored that he could move the clouds around in the sky or stir up dust devils in his wake. Urquhart remembers a time when Hubbard was talking to him while sitting in a chair more than an arm's length away. My attention wandered, he recalled. Suddenly he felt a finger poking him in the ribs. I came back. He was talking away, grinning and his eyes twinkling. He had not moved his arms or gotten up from the chair. Such ineffable experiences seemed to add up to something, although it was not clear what it might be. Lawrence Wright is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of six books of nonfiction, including City Children, Country Summer, In the New World, Saints and Sinners, Remembering Satan, Twins, and The Looming Tower, which won the Pulitzer Prize. His novel is God's Favorite. His newest play is Falaci, based on the life of journalist and interviewer Oriana Falaci. His newest book is Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. Thank you for joining me, Lawrence. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Lawrence, as you note in this book, uh, in many cases, the people who investigate Scientology who aren't actually in the church, who write about it, who aren't in the church tend to come to a bad end. Hmm. They tend to become investigated, trailed. I'd like you to talk about what made you decide to go and take that uh, chance to do this book. Well, actually, I haven't been sued, at least not as yet. And I've had many threats. But, um, and I'm aware of, you know, what happened to previous reporters and defectors and critics of the church. You know, some have been framed for crimes they didn't commit. They've been hounded by private investigators. They've been sued. None of those things have happened to me so far. But it's such a great story. It was irresistible. Uh, whatever the obstacles or the, the fears that the church has thrown out there about covering it, it was just too irresistible a story to not write about it. You did such a great job, and you begin the book uh, with... Uh, Paul Huggs, he's your through line. And what's interesting about him, he's such a great through line because we see him become a Scientologist, benefit from it. He's harmed by it. He questions it. We see him both good and bad in Scientology, both as neither good, entirely good, or entirely bad, but entirely human. Yeah. I always think that it's more interesting to uh, to let the reader come to his own conclusions, you know, not to judge as a reporter, but to investigate and put the facts down, and uh, and and make the story as rounded as possible, and the people, the characters that inhabit it, uh, good and ill, 
show them who they really are. That's, to me, you know, I think far more powerful because the reader is maybe guided to uh, conclusions, but essentially the reader has independent thought and can come to his own decisions about, you know, the value of the people or the institution that I'm writing about. Um, as you approach this book, this is a big book. It covers a hundred years of history, yeah. almost exactly. Um, and we have a huge cast of characters. This must have been a very difficult book to architect and put together. I'd like you to talk about preparing to do the book in terms of how you even structured your research, going into the research, and then how you wrote it and put together the research. This is a, a big story that uh -huh. uh, comes off as a page-turning thriller that's very coherent. Well, I developed a technique in my last book, The Looming Tower, about al-Qaeda. Uh, you know, when I was faced with trying to write about this horrible human tragedy of 9-11, how do you make it human? How do you bring it down to a personal level? And I decided I would write these interweaving biographies uh, of five different people uh, who, you know, leaders of al-Qaeda and FBI and so on, who were all intimately involved in it. And I used the same technique here. I, I, you know, the, there were certain characters, and I called them donkeys. Uh, it sounds like a disparaging term, I know, but uh, a donkey is really a very useful beast of burden. Scientology is a complicated world. It's very esoteric, strange to people, and there's a lot of language and, and information you have to know in order to appreciate the story. And you wouldn't care so much about it if there wasn't a central figure that you attach them, yourself to in, in his story becomes a way into it. That figure, the donkey, can carry a lot of information on his back and can take the reader into a world that he might not otherwise ever venture into or understand. And Paul Haggis became one of those donkeys. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard uh, is another one, the founder of, of Scientology. David Miscavige, who is the current leader, uh, is is another one, and those stories that you know, their biographies that go in and out, carry the story forward. When I'm writing it, typically I, you know, I set out a chronology, and um, I, uh, you know, it begins in 1911 with Hubbard's birth, but I'll write down significant dates, things that happened uh, in order, and you know, I can see where my characters enter. Uh, you know, where they intersect. And uh, so I have all of it, you know, the underlying timeline is laid out for me. And then I, I highlight scenes that I think will be key in the telling of the story. My theory is that the, the two vital elements in telling a story in a compelling manner are characters and scenes. And if you can get those, you know, if you have great scenes, and you have great characters, then you're going to have a great book. Uh, this certainly uh, fills that. One of the things, and just speaking chronologically, one of the things I really enjoyed was your vision of Hubbard as an early pulp science fiction writer and that whole scene. And that becomes uh, important, carries on through the book. It's really important. And the question I have to ask you is, there's a legend in the science fiction world that uh, 
Hubbard and Heinlein were at a bar, and Heinlein said, I want to write a novel about that creates a religion. And Hubbard said, well, why not just create a religion? There's a lot of money in them. Yeah. And that was a kind of a bet. And out of that, from Heinlein, we got Stranger in a Strange Land. And from Hubbard, we got Scientology. Did you find any evidence of that particular conversation? No, I, I did look into, you know, there was a lot, extensive conversation, correspondence between Heinlein and Hubbard, and they were good friends. And uh, I read all that correspondence. There's nothing there. Uh, but there are many, many testimonials about Hubbard saying that I'd like to start a religion. That's where the money is. And yet, and that may be true. I mean, you know, I accept that he probably see, saw it as a business opportunity. But if he really was a con man, as so many say, somewhere along the line he would have taken the money and run. Uh, he had gone off to Monte Carlo and enjoyed himself. He never did that. He spent his whole life elaborating this esoteric doctrine and the bureaucracy that undergirds uh, the Church of Scientology. So he, at some level he must have believed it. He certainly believed in his mission. Let's talk a little bit about um, Haggis. And one of the things that interested me about this book and about your work in general is it must have taken, what, hundreds of interviews to put together this book? Uh, more than 250. More than 250. Your new play about uh, Oriana Falacci is in the form of an interview in which mm -hmm. the interviewer, she's a famous interviewer, is interviewed. And we also see that from the beginning, uh, Paul Haggis is drawn into the world of Scientology essentially through an interview and the importance of the interview itself in the form of an audit in Scientology. So I'd like you to talk about the importance of interviews to you as a writer and as a subject and also in this book, the means of getting people into Scientology. Well, that's an interesting parallel you draw. I, of course, interviews are central in my life. And uh, if you are not a reporter, uh, you may not understand the nature of the relationship that can develop. Uh, you know, you're you have a goal in, in trying to reveal portions of a personality that may not want to be you know, aired out in public. Uh, but, you know, you, your whole goal as a reporter is to understand, and, and uh, understanding requires revelation, and revelation requires uh, stripping away certain disguises. And that's what Oriana Falacci was so brilliant at. Uh, and she would do it in ways that sometimes were quite confrontive and shocking. I, I'm not that kind of reporter. I, I, I don't have the the flair for drama that she has, but, you know, she really impressed me as a young man and maybe uh, steered me into journalism as a kind of sexy and exciting topic. When you're interviewing a subject, uh, the subject has an interest in it as well. I mean, people are always amazed that, you know, who will talk to me, you know, you know, Al-Qaeda people or, you know, Scientologists or, you know, I mean, so many people that I've talked to, you would think, should never have been talking to a reporter. And yet, my f observation is that everybody wants to be understood. And, uh, and they feel that if they could just have that conversation with a reasonable and sympathetic listener, that, you know, they're 
their life would be understood. And I try to be that person. Uh, I try to be the receptive audience, the, the knowledgeable and curious uh, acquaintance who will find out you know, what's really going on inside the mind. There's a, there's a conspiracy in between the reporter and the subject in some respects that you know the reporter wants to get the information the the subject wants to frame it in a in an appealing way but also i think everybody really wants to get down to you know a real moment of revelation and transformation and occasionally those things happen like in this book when i talked to paul haggis he had never really talked about Scientology before. He had resigned very publicly, but he had never really discussed it. He had not talked to the press at all. So his talking to me was, um, you know, a new experience for him. And a lot of what we talked about, he hadn't really thought about before. The questions I had for him, uh, he had been holding at bay. And it was exciting and dangerous for him in some respects to go into those unguarded territories and find out why he you know joined the church in the first place what he got out of it you know what he thought during all that period of time why didn't he look at the evidence about the church before he finally did all of those questions that sensible people would ask he had been putting aside and uh, I became his way of examining his own behavior. It's such an interesting story that he has because he has, I think, some of the the better side of Scientology. When he joined, he was kind of going nowhere. He had a talent for lock picking and was yeah. something of a troublemaker. Um, and, but he he came to Hollywood and was working in cartoons and when he, he had that Scientology connection really actually did substantively help him get work and better his own craft. Yeah, it, you know, he became very involved in the Scientology community. And that's, you know, when people say, you know, why didn't people leave and so on, uh, what you have to understand about not just Scientology, any religious community, uh, when you ad- say you adopt a set of beliefs, and you know they can be very esoteric beliefs, such as Scientology has. You actually move into a society, a community that's prepared to receive you, a community of believers, and the beliefs are what separate you from the rest of society. Uh, they're not you're not separated by language or ethnic orientation or you know anything. You it's only your beliefs, and you know you become a member of a community that says we believe this. And in the case of Haggis and other Scientologists and other members of other religious communities, you know, your family's involved in it. Uh, his children were going to schools that were, you know, Scientology schools. Uh, he'd given a lot of money to it. He'd affixed his name to petitions and defended the church publicly. And he became very well identified with the church. It's not so easy to walk away from that. The church itself has a, such a fascinating history, and you do such a great job. A big part of this book is the biography of L. Ron Hubbard 
um, as the source of all this. So I, I really I'd like you to talk about Hubbard. He's such a fascinating figure as as you draw him because he had an incredible imagination and an incredible ability to write. And he, this was all born in the pulps. And he was really, he was a pretty smart guy and he was really energetic. He could really produce. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, he holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the number of books he wrote, more than a thousand. When he was working in the pulps in the in the 30s and 40s, he would write more than 100,000 words a month. It's hard for me to imagine, but uh, you know he would roll in butcher paper into his typewriter, and uh, and I think it was largely automatic writing of some sort. But it was a physical act. He would, he would perspire from the effort, and then at the end of that, he would take a T square and rip off his story and roll in the next one. Uh, he, you know, he published under many different aliases because he wrote so many stories that uh, it would it would seem like he was dominating the issue, and uh, so he had five or six aliases that he published under, and this wasn't unusual. I mean, a lot of the pulp writers of that era uh, who came out of that period would write extensively. They were getting paid a penny a word. And uh, even during the Depression, that you know wasn't much money. Uh, but if you're writing 100,000 words a month, then it actually mounts up to a pretty good living. And when you know that training uh, came in handy when he started his own church, because you know he wrote Dianetics, this book, uh, it's kind of a self-help manual, but he wrote it in a month, 400-something page book that became a New York Times bestseller and really established the category of self-help books that uh, were, became so popular after World War II. Uh, that was the paradigm. And he went on to write and write and write uh, all the doctrines of the Church of Scientology and, and elaborate the uh, very uh, intricate bureaucracy that he created to support the Church of Scientology. Now, I remember when Dianetics came out. I was a super young science fiction reader, and I remember uh -huh. looking at that book. It kind of made me scared because uh -huh. I thought, is this science fiction? What is this? So I'd like you to talk about the creation of Dianetics and where he went after that because he went to England, and this was at the beginning of the, the Hubbard Navy. Yeah. The Dianetics, uh, you know, Hubbard went to— um, uh, Savannah, Georgia, where in, in 1949, 48, late 48, early 49. And uh, he said that he was doing some work for a mental institution there. He may have been getting treatment. I, we don't know. I, I, I've been looking into that, and we never really got a clear answer. But it's there that he began, the seeds of Dianetics were planted. And um, then he moved to New Jersey, uh, wrote the book in the space of a month, quoting studies that he said had, uh, he had undertaken but had never published, and nobody knows if they were ever done. Uh, he sent the manuscript off to the American Psychiatric and American Psycho Psychological Associations with the idea that they were going to hail him as a new, you know, powerful innovator, uh, a, a kind of new Freud. And... Um, they looked at this book with absolute uh, puzzlement. You know, it was to them psychological folk art. They couldn't make heads or tails of it, and they ridiculed it, and he never forgave the mental health establishment. 
uh, after that, he set the you know the mental health uh, field as being the source of all of mankind's problems, the source of terrorism and plague and wars and famine. It's all the psychiatrists who are behind all this. You know, I couldn't help but be reminded of um, how bin Laden's rejection by the Saudis uh, when he proposed to fight Hussein, the the similarity between those two, how that was the foment for something that followed. That's a really interesting point I hadn't thought about, but it's true. You know, there's a psychic wound that uh, that it couldn't heal, and um, so Al Qaeda, you know, came out of that rejection that uh, that Bin Laden experienced in this in in Saudi Arabia. Certainly, uh, Hubbard had uh, a brief against psychiatry that, um, it, it, for most people, rather hard to understand. Uh, and I think sometimes the church bends the truth around a little bit to try to make the case. Uh, for instance, there's a museum in Los Angeles that the church has called the, the Psychi- Psychiatry Museum. Oh, that's so fascinating. Have you, have you been, been there? there? No. no, but I've read uh, about this. Well, when I went there, I mean, who goes there? There were some you know, teenagers uh, ahead of me, and the smell of pot was pretty strong. And I, it has a, the aspect of being like a haunted house, a Halloween haunted house. But, uh, you know, psychiatry has a lot to answer for, and it has many dark moments in its history, and they are amply chronicled in this museum. But... For instance, you know, one of the briefs against psychiatry is that it's responsible for terrorism, and um, in particular that uh, psychiatry is behind al-Qaeda. Well, there aren't any psychiatrists in al-Qaeda. Uh, the, uh, they, according to the exhibit, Ayman al-Zawahri, who was the number two and now the number one guy in, uh, in al-Qaeda, uh, he's an Egyptian doctor. They said that he's a psychiatrist. Well, he's a surgeon. He's not a psychiatrist. There's another part of the exhibit that claims that this guy, Abu Dada, who was involved in al-Qaeda in Spain, um, was behind the 9-11, the Madrid train bombings, and that he's a psychiatrist. Well, he had nothing to do with the train bombings, and he's an auto salesman. But that's the kind of evidence, if you can call it that, that the church marshals to make its case. One of the things I think that's uh, really interesting is how in science fiction is so often uh, portrayed as being uh, literature of the future. But mm-hmm. really, science fiction writers are almost always writing about the present. And nowhere is this more apparent than in the uh what is this? There's a secret nut at the heart of uh, the Scientology religion, the tale of Xenu, which has a galactic empire that bears a definite resemblance to 1950s America. Uh-huh. A lot of what we see in the culture of Scientology is an artifact of Hubbard's uh, personality that was so characteristic of that time. I mean, for instance, you know, you'll see Hubbard was a heavy smoker. And, uh, you know, you'll see a lot of Scientologists, especially uh, in the executive corps, are smokers. Uh, There was a, Hubbard loved 
you know, cars and motorcycles and boats. And you see that replicated um, even today. Uh, Also, the attitudes towards homosexuals. Uh, This was, you know, back in the 50s, uh, homosexuality was regarded by the mental health profession as being uh, a mental illness. And, you know, of course, most Americans thought it was, uh, you know, a dangerous perversion. Well, so did Hubbard. And, uh, you know, the attitude that uh, prevailed at that time is still a feature of, of Scientology thinking. As Scientology grew and made more money, Hubbard um, had made some big plans. And once he got his Navy going, he was trying to sail around. Now, later on in the book, you talk about how uh, one of the chancellors of Germany, uh, Blum, said that he was afraid that uh, the Scientologists were were trying to overthrow Germany. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a big stretch, but when you read your book, it wasn't a big stretch. They really did try to take over Morocco at one point. Well, you mentioned the Navy. Uh, In the mid-'60s, Hubbard... uh, was made unwelcome in England, and uh, there were you know, investigations going on in different countries about Scientology. And he started a little Scientology Navy and acquired several ocean-going vessels and pressed these young people into service uh, as his crew. And they called themselves the Sea Org or Sea Organization. That became later the, the clergy of the church. But uh, they spent nearly a decade roaming the Mediterranean and the Caribbean. Uh, And a lot of what we, you know, what came, the doctrine of the Church of Scientology came out of that experience when Hubbard was really on the high seas. Uh, Forty days and 40 nights. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is a parallel. Uh, And it's, I think, one of the most colorful and intriguing hit parts of the history of the church. It's also, you know, some of the things that we look at now as the problems inside Scientology came from that era. Uh, The problem of uh, punishment, for instance. Uh, Captain on a ship does have problems, you know, with discipline, but Hubbard had some ideas about discipline that were pretty stern, especially where children are concerned. And... uh, some of these kids were uh, placed in the the anchor hold, which was dank and wet and and cold and uh, dangerous because were the anchor chain to slip, they could be torn to pieces. And they'd be kept in there sometimes for weeks, uh, certainly many days. When not allowed to go to the bathroom or you know they you know not they had to sleep in there by themselves. It was terrifying for them. Uh, People who crossed uh, with uh, their executives, uh, you know, Sea Org members would be thrown overboard uh, as punishment, sometimes with their hands and feet bound. Uh, You know, this was uh, really quite dramatic uh, punishment, which Hubbard seemed to relish. That attitude is unfortunately still very much a part of Scientology's uh, treatment of Sea Org members now. Uh, and there are re-education camps that are around the world where people who have fallen out of favor have been confined for months and even years at a time. These are the RFPs that are like dungeons, as you describe them. Yeah. 
There's one uh, that notable one on the the Sea Org base in Southern California is the international headquarters in a little near Hemet, California, in the desert. And uh, there were a pair of double-wide trailers that had been married together and that had formed an office suite at one point. But in 2006, uh, David Miscavige, the current leader, cleared out all the furniture and began to confine his top executives in these double-wide trailers, sleeping on the floor, only allowed out for a shower in the morning, and that's it. You know, they ate table scraps out of buckets, and, uh, and they spent the day confessing their crimes to each other. There's a, there's a scene that took place inside uh, the hole, as they call these double-wide trailers, that I think is really revelatory of the state of mind. One night, Miscavige came down to the hole with a jam box, and uh, he said that we're going to play musical chairs. And at the time, there were about 100 executives locked up and well-confined in, inside this hole. And uh, so he had chairs brought in said, we're going to play musical chairs. And the last person remaining will get to stay. But others of you will be kicked out or sent off to distant locations, uh, and husbands and wives will be separated. In order to give reality to this, he had airline tickets actually printed up in the Scientology travel office. And so the tune that he selected for the musical chairs was Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. And it went on for hours. And as the number of chairs diminished, uh, fist fights broke out, chairs were broken, clothes were torn. And what was so striking to me is that they were fighting to stay there. They were fighting to stay in this place and uh, where many of them had already been confined for months and months. Uh, some, you know, a lot of physical abuse had gone on. One of the executives had to mop the f- toilet floor with his tongue. You know, that's the kind of thing that was happening inside the hole. And yet there they were fighting to remain. You even talk about how uh, one of uh, Tom Cruise's paramours was forced to clean public restrooms with a toothbrush. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah, this was... Uh, Tom Cruise was heard by a couple of my sources to complain while he was in Madrid that uh, he needed a new girlfriend. He had just you know, divorced his second wife, Nicole Kidman, and he had broken up with Penelope Cruise, and he was without a mate. And uh, in each of his romances, Scientology had played a... A, a difficult role. So, you know, the, the leader of the church, David Miscavige, overheard this remark, and so he assigned some of his top executives, including his wife, Shelley, to uh, search out a mate for Tom Cruise. It would be a Scientologist and an appropriate mate. And a lot of uh, Scientology actresses and other women were interviewed and videotaped Many of them thought that they were trying out for a role. And um, later, you know, they actually interviewed actresses who weren't Scientologists to, for the same part as his mate. But at that point, they were still looking for Scientologists. And they came upon this very attractive young Iranian-American named Nazanin Boniandi. Uh, she was a pre-med student and um, an accomplished musician and a specialist in human rights. They came to her and said, we have a mission for you. And they didn't tell her exactly what it was. 
but they moved her into the celebrity center in Hollywood, separating her from her family. And um, the one of the things that she was told is that she had to break up with her boyfriend, which was very upsetting for her because they'd been together for four years and she had gotten him into Scientology. And she refused. And her auditor, which is a sort of Scientology therapist, asked her, what would it take to have you break up with him? And she said, well, I suppose if he were cheating on me, I would. And so the next day they brought her transcripts of his auditing session in which he admitted that he had uh, had affairs. And so she broke up with him. Then um, she was taken to Beverly Hills and given a new wardrobe. Her teeth were, she had her braces taken off. Her hair was styled. And um, all this time she's thinking that this is, has something to do with human rights. Uh, and yet one of the questions she was asked was, what would your dream date be? And, well, my dream date, I, I suppose, uh, you know, eating sushi and going ice skating. So... Finally, she's flown to New York, and her mission is going to be revealed to her. But, by the way, we have to stop at the New York church. And they did, and who should be there but Tom Cruise? And it seems so coincidental until he says to her, by the way, we're going over to Nobu for some sushi tonight, and then we're going to go skating at the Rockefeller Center. Would you like to join us? And that seemed a little too coincidental. And with, but within a month, she was living in Tom Cruise's house, and um, the relationship didn't go that well. During Christmas holidays, uh, Miscavige and his wife went down to visit Cruise and Nazanin in uh, Cruise's vacation retreat in Telluride, Colorado, and she was ill, and uh, she a couple of times didn't understand what Miscavige was saying and asked him to repeat himself. And this was a great sin uh, because it was disrespecting his ability to communicate. And after that, it, according to my sources, uh, Cruz broke off all relationship with her. And, uh, but as a gesture, he offered to buy her some more Scientology training in Clearwater, Florida, their spiritual headquarters. And when she got there and confessed to some, a friend of hers there, that she had just broken up with Tom Cruise. She was punished and made to clean out public toilets with a toothbrush and a dumpster. So, you know, it's an amazing story. One of the uh, characters, I think, who's so fascinating is David Miscavige. And here's a, a kid at the age of, what, 14? He makes the billion-year promise. Yeah, he was... He joined when he was 16, but he was at the Sea Org. But he had been in uh, Scientology since, you know, several years before that. And, yeah, he is a real product of the church. Uh, a lot of people who have left Scientology believe that he's taken the church away from its original vision by Hubbard. But, you know, the truth is he's a product of Scientology. He's... He rules the church single-handedly. I mean, if I've had 12 people tell me they've been beaten by David Miscavige and more than 20 who've witnessed such actions. So, And in your book, every time you mention that, there's an asterisk that says <laughs> it's Church of Scientology denies that any of this happened. 
Well, I always try to give the church the opportunity to you know respond the way you know sent you know countless uh, fact-checking queries to them, uh, giving them the opportunity to weigh in. Unfortunately, they would never let me talk to Miss Gavage mm-hmm. or any of the other top executives. But um, you know, I spent a lot of time allowing them to get their get a chance to respond to the allegations in print. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Miss Cavage because he is such an interesting character. Well, he grew up in a little suburb of Philadelphia. He had terrible asthma, uh, and you know he, the story, the legend is that uh, his he, he you know medicine wasn't helping him. Steroids that he was taking weren't working, and so um, his father got him some Dianetic counseling. And this actually made a difference. Um, so it, it, the church beca- became very important in the Miscavige family life. And they went to St. Hill, England, which was at that time where uh, Hubbard had established the international headquarters. And he was, uh, David Miscavige was one of the youngest auditors, uh, that's a therapist, uh, in the history of the church. Um, I've been told by... Uh, two people who were at St. Hill during that time that uh, Miscavige had struck uh, a young uh, woman in Scientology during an auditing session and that was he was told to leave. But in any case, he actually did join the Sea Org a few years later and the other members of the family had also done so, eventually including his father but not his mother. One of the things I thought that was so interesting were the Commodore's Messengers organization, the CMO, which and how that developed into a an organization that had a conflict with the Guardian's office. But it started out as these preteen girls in hot pants in stiletto shoes uh, hanging out outside of Hubbard's office. What a strange relationship. As far as I can tell, there was actually no sexual interaction between Hubbard and these young women. Uh, but there was a very intimate relationship. Uh, they would put him to you know bed at night. They'd draw his bath. They'd dress him in the morning uh, when he was you know going to when he wanted to issue an order. Uh, he would call in a messenger, you know, say a twelve-year-old girl, and uh, say you know go tell the captain you know, and then he might curse something you know in a loud, angry voice, and. Uh, the, the the young lady would go to the captain's uh, office and imitating Hubbard's words and tone of voice exactly, say the words that Hubbard had instructed. And the captain would say to the little girl, yes, sir, because she represents Hubbard. And to this day, uh, your superior officers are re- always recorded, recalled sir, no matter what the gender. Hubbard became... You know, I mean, they took care of him, and he became their kind of parent. And, you know, when they were old enough to learn how to wear cosmetics, he would teach them how to do that. And, uh, you know, it was it was a very odd relationship. Eventually, uh, boys were brought into Commodore's Messengers, and, and Miscavige was one of those boys. The... Um, at the same time, Hubbard created a kind of internal police, uh, like a 
CIA or something or an interior ministry inside Scientology called the Guardian's office. And he put his wife, Mary Sue Hubbard, in charge of that. So there were these two kind of uh, executive and underground organizations. There was the Guardian's office and the Commodore's messengers. And they became this kind of, they were engaged sometimes in a kind of contest for power. One representing Hubbard, it's much smaller, but, you know, they were representing Hubbard, so they had a certain standing. And then the other, this vast, uh, what became a really large secretive organization, the Guardian's office. That was the office that um, became involved in the Operation Snow White, which was... That's such a great story. Tell us about Operation Snow White. Well, Hubbard was concerned about what governments, especially the American government, knew about Scientology. He was convinced that they were prying into the church's affairs and infiltrating. And uh, there may be some truth in that, but what he did was issue an order uh, called Operation Snow White. And the idea was that Scientologists, through the Guardian's office, Mary Sue's operation, would infiltrate branches of the American government, the FBI, the Justice Department, the IRS, Food and Drug Administration, and newspapers such as the Washington Post and the Mental Health Associations and even foreign governments, Germany and other countries. More than 5,000 Scientologists were deployed in this exercise. And um, it wasn't until 1977 when the FBI got a tip and they did a raid on Scientology's headquarters, they discovered the true extent of the penetration. It was certainly the largest infiltration of the American government by any organization in our history. Talk about um, one of the, at the heart of this book is this idea as what is a church, what is a religion, and what is belief? And I think at the heart of that is a dissertation by Frank Flynn, a Franciscan friar who makes, I think, alarming comparisons and but appropriate between the Catholic Church and the Church of Scientology. Well, Flynn is an expert witness in a number of the trials that the church has undergone, and um, he's you know he's he's a very compelling figure because he had been a Franciscan friar, and uh, you know. People talk about the poverty of the members of the Sea Org clergy, and they're only paid $50 a week. Uh, well, as a Franciscan friar, uh, Flynn owned nothing, got no pay. Uh, they talk about the abuse, you know, the physical abuse of the Sea Org members, but as a, a, a friar, uh, on Fridays, Flynn would flay himself. Uh, with a whip to uh, replicate the suffering of Jesus on the way to the cross. Uh, so, you know, the, the kind of esoteric doctrines of Scientology seem really bizarre to most people, but we've stopped examining, you know, the sometimes rather bizarre beliefs that mainstream religions such as Catholicism hold. So in a courtroom uh, where Flynn would be testifying, uh, these, what we think of as rigid distinctions between cults and religions, break down pretty quickly. 
One of the things that uh, Scientology is accused of, and you talk about this in your book, is brainwashing. That's a term that's easy to say. It has a lot of instant associations. If I say I was brainwashed, everybody sort of feels like they know what I mean. But it's not so clear as we would like to think, is it? No, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, whether whether people uh, can be forced to change their beliefs is the question. And a lot of the best research was done by Robert J. Lifton uh, after the Korean War when a number of American and UN troops had been captured by the Chinese communists. And some of them came out of that experience uh, espousing the beliefs of their captors. And that's where the term brainwashing first surfaced. And um, Americans were really shocked by this, that anybody could disavow, you know, our way of life. Uh, and Lifton did a lot of the, uh, the examination of people who had been through that process. He talks about um, mind reform. He doesn't use the term brainwashing. And he found that it was very rare. There are only a few cases where people were uh, subjected to this kind of thought control and actually came out of it believing what their captors were telling them. But it did happen sometimes. And he describes what he calls a totalistic universe. There are some parallels with uh, what the situation that obtains inside the Sea Org when people are placed in a remote desert compound, their access to the outside world severely restricted, their education cut off, uh, and uh, there's a punishment. You know, these re-education camps or the physical abuse uh, and high exit costs uh, because if you try to leave, you'll be asked to sign a list of crimes you've committed against the church and presented with a bill for the services you didn't pay for, which are typically more than $100,000, which people who've been paid $50 a week can never you know, manage. So many people actually escape, and oftentimes they're brought back, they're recaptured and placed in the re-education camps and you know, sometimes left there for you know, years on end. You talk about the numbers of Scientology. They claim... I think what four million and eight to ten million. Eight to ten million, four point four million coming in every year. Yeah, right. You say it looks like there's about twenty five thousand people in the U.S. Right. Um, and but one thing we do know is they have a lot of money. So talk about Scientology and money. I've often seen the Scientology spelled with a dollar sign for the right. S. Yes. Um, According to former executives, the church has more than a billion dollars in liquid assets, mostly in offshore accounts. That's just liquid assets, and we're not talking about the property they own around the world. But, uh, you know, the Catholic Church would be hard-pressed to come up with a billion dollars in cash. It's a lot of money. If it's only if we're only talking about 30,000 people in the world, I, I'm convinced that there are probably more Scientologists than are actually members of the International Association of Scientologists, which is maybe the best indicator of affiliation with the church. But, you know, members are assiduously asked for money, and uh, it's a very, very expensive church to be involved in. 
if you're going to climb to the top of the spiritual pyramid inside Scientology, it probably costs you around half a million dollars. And then there's the auditing or therapy that you're expected to get, which is also very pricey. You will be expected to buy the works of L. Ron Hubbard, who's written more than a thousand books. Um, you have to join the International Association. You buy your e-meter, which is uh, a kind of Scientology um, uh, lie detector. And you're continually asked to donate to Scientology causes and building funds. People give millions of dollars to the church, and um, many of them give money they don't have. You know, the, the history of the church is full of examples of people pledging money that they didn't actually have in their pockets. And, um, you know, one uh, person told me that he had been a bank teller and conspired in a bank robbery in order to pay off his pledge. Uh, another was a contractor who had taken out a construction loan for a restaurant that he was supposed to build. And apparently he gave much or all of that money to the church and then jumped off a bridge here in the Bay Area. You know, the, the kind of pressure that's brought on people to give money to the church is really very extraordinary. I, I love the e-meter, and you have lots of great pictures of it. It started out as like a couple of uh, soup cans. That's right, with the label scraped off. Yeah. And then we see a picture of L. Ron Hubbard uh, giving an a e-meter test to a tomato. Yeah. And then eventually we see the new sleek e-meter, which looks uh, it's probably digital, looks like it has a, a CD slot in it. You know, the e-meter is uh, it's like one-third of a lie detector. Uh, it doesn't measure your pulse or respiration, but it does measure your galvanic skin response. And, uh, you know, you hold these cans. There's a little, there are wires that connect it to the meter, and a small indetectable current passes through. So uh, and, and, and there's a needle that registers. What it registers is, you know, the moisture content in your skin and the movement of your hands and so on. But in Scientology, they believe that it actually measures the mass of your thoughts. Uh, there's no evidence in science that thoughts have mass. But the idea in Scientology is that the e-meter can kind of see into your mind. And um, if you have a reaction to, a, a, an emotional reaction to a subject, the needle will move in, in, in distinctive ways. So if there's something disturbing you in your life, uh, you may be asked uh, to repeat that, tell that story again, and you know, then again and again, and eventually you settle down and the, the, uh, the needle floats, as they say in Scientology. And, uh, and in some respects, that experience, that disturbing memory that you have, has been robbed of its power over you. This isn't very much different from a therapeutic situation that you might be in in any place. What sometimes happens in Scientology is that you'll be asked to remember earlier events that were like the one that you just talked about. Say if you had an argument with your wife um, about money, and uh, was there another time when you had that kind of discussion? Well, yes, 
I remember my mother, you know, when I was getting my allowance, you know, you might have that memory. And then you say, well, go back further than that. And what's happened, in, there's a progression. People began to have memories of experiences in other lives. And the e-meter would validate those experiences and say they were true. You know, the, the, the auditor might say, stop, wait a minute, what was that thought that just went through your mind because he's looking at the needle? And you think, well, I just had an image of a farmhouse. Well, go back to that. Uh, go back into that farmhouse and tell me what you see. Now open the door and walk outside, you know, and it might be 19th century France that you think that you're in. And uh, and you could be a, a, a soldier in the Napoleonic army or something like that. And you would have what seems to be a real memory because the e-meter validates it. This is really good news because what it tells you is that you've lived before and you'll live again. And it, it expresses the Scientology uh, idea that you are an immortal spirit. In Scientology lingo, that's a thetan. And uh, you are not your body or your mind, but you are a spirit that will live on and on through many lifetimes. And what Scientology offers you is the ability to recapture those memories and that, that understanding of yourself as an immortal being. And that's what I think, as you point out, kind of makes it a religion. And it, what it has in common with so many religions is that on one hand, you're an immortal being. On another hand, that justifies all the, you know, you don't worry about the fact that you're living a terrible life on this earth because you'll get another chance in the next life or right. the life after that. Right. Yeah, and in that way, people can justify surrendering their present existence to something like the Sea Org where you, you know, you're impoverished and uneducated and you work endless hours, but it's only one lifetime. You've got many, many more. But, of course, you signed a contract for a billion years of service, so there'll be a lot of lifetimes involved in that. One thing that uh, Hubbard did quite well was to wrap all this in a kind of a scientific uh, feel, and that came out of his science fiction upbringing, to, to take something that's entirely fantastic, but by giving it this kind of a hand-waving veneer of science, it seems real. What Hubbard did, that science fiction writers don't do, is he says, no, this isn't fiction. This is the real deal. Yeah. You know, the uh, Scientology doesn't present itself as a faith, which is one of those uh, paradoxes about how it got to be considered a religion. Instead of being a faith, it's a technology. And uh, the idea is that there is a, a stairway to spiritual enlightenment, and it it is guaranteed you will you will become enlightened if you climb this very expensive uh, uh, set of courses that Scientology has to offer you. And um, a lot of the elements that have been so ridiculed about Scientology, uh, the Xenu story and so on, uh, all have come out of Hubbard's fervid imagination and are readily visible in other things that he wrote that are not the secret doctrines of the church, but are just uh, science fiction stories that he wrote. 
Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Falaci. I think it's so interesting that you write such compelling nonfiction and then go around, turn around and write the on a huge scale, a huge canvas, and then give us a, a work of fiction that's totally intimate um, and focused on one person. Well, you know, Falaci is, uh, she was a, a kind of distant mentor for me. I mean, I, I as a young man, I was am- amazed by her. You know, she was so courageous, so indomitable, scary, really, but she brought the art of the interview to a height that it has never, ever before attained, or I think since then. Uh, she was the greatest practitioner of the art of the interview. And here we are engaged in one. And, you know, think about how it might have been different if she were interviewing me or vice versa. Um, what was it that she was able to get out of people that is different? Clearly, there was something. She had a way of, of exposing people. And there was something willful about uh, the relationship on both sides. You know, that's one of the things I think that people don't understand about interview process uh, is that it's, it's a kind of conspiracy. We both have an interest in getting some material, interesting material out there. I, when you're interviewing me, I want to come across as you know, appealing and charming and intelligent and so on and, and frame my story. And you know, your goal is to help me do that, but get other stuff out that is new information. Sometimes, like in the case of the, my, this book, Paul Haggis, uh, he had never talked about his experience in Scientology before, and he didn't want to, but he agreed to talk to me, and we talked for, you know, our, the interview process went on for more than a year, and it was very therapeutic for him. I mean, I found myself in a uh, helping Paul understand what he was thinking because these were questions that he had never allowed himself to uh, to examine on his own. And that was part of what Falaci did so brilliantly, is that she would break through barriers and uh, just explode through the door and, uh, and, and through the resistances and get people to acknowledge things that in some ways they always wanted to. That's the, that, that's the story of the play is, you know, her relationship with this young woman who's interviewing her and she's teaching the young woman how to be a good interviewer, but it then comes back to haunt her. I've been speaking with Lawrence Wright. His new work of nonfiction is Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. Thank you for joining me, Lawrence. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.